Mark chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went on unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem, and were all baptized of him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of a skin about his loins, and he did eat locust and wild honey, and preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. And I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. So I decided, I taught Mark 5 last Wednesday, and I decided that I'm just going to work my way through, we're going to work as a church, and I'll be the one doing it, through the gospel of Mark. So we're just going to go verse, not verse by verse, but we'll have it in sections or whatever. And what I may do is go through so many chapters, and so I don't wear you all out, and take a break from it, and then come back to it at another time. Because we do this at prison generally, we, Jeff and I, what we'll do is go through books, and we just found if you just stay on one book for a long time, and it's, you know, you're going to be teaching different things, but it tends to get a little weary. So we won't do that to you. We'll just go for a little ways, and then we'll take a break and come back to it at another time. But I want to give an introduction tonight. So this, you know, the thing is, it's going to make us better readers of the Bible, if you'll pay attention to what I have to say. And I don't think it'll be real long. I hate to say that every time Brother Hamilton did, it was two hours. <laughs> Maybe not quite. So I don't think that it'll be a real long, uh, we'll be here real long tonight. And you know, it's funny, when I used to hear people say they're going to give introductions, I, my first reaction always was, I hate introductions. But then once they give them, I'd be like, well, that was really good. And I really learned some things. So hopefully that's the way it'll be for us tonight. But the Gospel of Mark and for the young kids, I think, so for older people, some of this may be things you already know, and it'll just be a reminder, but there's a lot of people and younger people that, uh, hopefully even the teenagers are listening, that it'll be some things they didn't know about the Gospel of Mark. So it is the shortest of all the Gospels, and they didn't used to believe this, but now almost everyone believes that it was the first Gospel that was written. And Mark's Gospel, it's geared towards evangelism and missions. That's why it was written. So it is a very good gospel. If you talk somebody's interested in Christianity, it's a good gospel if they want to know about the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Mark leaves out a lot of things that are included in Matthew, Luke, and John. But everything in Mark is in Matthew and Luke. And so they used to just basically disregard Mark. It's amazing to me. But now they think, they believe that Mark is the source, one of the sources that was used by Matthew and Luke. So the thing is, Mark, when he wrote his gospel, he was breaking new ground because there had never been a gospel account written before. And so you can just imagine, he's got this scroll or probably a number of scrolls that he has written in here. And they're like, what's this? Well, that's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> And I want you to read that. It's a book about his life, his teachings, and all his miracles. And I'd really like you to read it, except the thing is, they didn't, we'll talk about that in a minute. It wasn't like us. They didn't have Bibles back then. So when these guys wrote their Gospels, they're biographies, but they are not biographies like a biography we would write or read today. 
because when you pick up somebody's biography today, they start back clear with the birth, they go all the way through, they leave no stone unturned. But that's not what Mark is doing here. He leaves out the birth narrative, and you'll see in chapter 1, he just jumps right into John the Baptist coming. He doesn't talk anything about Jesus' birth, anything prior to that. So he's, what he's doing, though, in writing this is he is wanting people, and he's trying to persuade people. That is his purpose, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of this gospel. So just for your information, none of the gospels that are written, none of the four gospels include the name of the authors. So none of them, have, like Paul will say, uh, you know, he'll put his name in his epistles. But none of the gospels have the names of the gospel writers. None of them tell when they were written. None of them tell where they were written. And except Luke, none of them tell to whom they were written. Now, that doesn't mean we can't know some of those things. Because on the Gospels, on the outside of the scrolls, they would write the Gospel according to Mark. According to, that's been done ever since they started being handed down. And all throughout church history, it's been understood that Mark wrote the Gospel. So we really don't need, and I'll tell you some other things we can know how Mark wrote the Gospel. And as far as dates when they were written, we can look at internal evidence. We can read things inside the gospel themselves and get a pretty good idea of what the time was. And Luke himself, well, you know, he'll give, he's like really picky and gives a lot of biographical information and historical information. So there are ways to know those things. But like I said, the gospel writers, they weren't literary people. They weren't book writers like some famous, you know, they weren't the Mark Twains of their day. All they were were ordinary people that had followed the Lord Jesus Christ, that just determined we are going to write down the events of his life. And one thing about Mark, you don't get it so much in English, but you, in a way you do, but you really would reading the Greek, is he just uses the everyday language of the common man to tell his story because he's writing to common people. So and all of the gospel narratives are all based on eyewitness accounts. So the gospels are based on people who actually saw and witnessed the Lord Jesus Christ. Based on that, okay? But here's the thing we need to know. The Bible is not, because people will raise these questions, but the Bible is not the only account, historical account, that we have of the Lord Jesus. Because there were both Roman and Jewish historians that talked about the Lord Jesus Christ, that he lived, and they will say that he was crucified by Pontius Pilate when he was the governor in Palestine. And so you say, well, hey, I don't need that. Well, I don't either. But there's people out there that they'll bring stuff like that up. And you could say it doesn't hurt to know those kinds of things is, what, I guess, what I'm saying. But one important fact that you, I think, helps us to know is the Gospels were written a mere 30 years after the Lord Jesus Christ died. And so here's the significance to that. 30 years is not a very long time. There were a lot of people that were still alive when all these events happened. So what we can know is that if these people are reading these accounts and they're writing false things in there, they're not going to get away with that. They're going to say, hey, wait a minute, you can't, you can't say that. That never happened. Just like take, for instance, you could take a lot of cases, but we talked about the Gadarene demoniac last week in Mark 5. And do you think those people in that region, they read this gospel, makes it to them, this gospel of Mark. And he's talking about this demoniac that everybody knew. He's talking about this town he goes to that he published everywhere. And it says they're astonished. Everybody had to know about this guy. And so do you think if they made up that story that somehow they wouldn't be saying, hey, this is not right. It wouldn't have lasted. 
When people write bogus things today, people catch on right away and they're exposed, right? And that's the end of it. But it hadn't been that way with the Bible. Or what about the woman at the well in Sychar? It's Samaria. So she meets Jesus, and then it says she goes back to Samaria. And it wasn't just a couple. Samaria was the capital of Israel at one time. It was a big town. It says she goes back there, and it wasn't just a couple people that believed in the Lord Jesus. It says many in that town. So these accounts, if they're coming back to these places within 30 to 50 years, there's people still alive. And they'd be like, there's no way that's true. And so that's one thing we can know. Hey, the Bible is true. Right, And also the manuscripts that we have, so you all know there's, maybe you don't know, there are thousands upon thousands of manuscripts. Some of them are full accounts of the New Testament, and some of them it's just a page or two, there's, and some of them are just pieces. But they keep finding them dated further back to the, Lord, to the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are closer to the actual life of Jesus, 30 years, than any other event in history where you find a writing. So with Islam, the founder of Islam, I'm drawing, Muhammad, the, the writings of his are hundreds and hundreds of years after he was alive. And Jesus, we got a mere 30 years. Or take Julius Caesar. So nobody sits there and doubts whether Julius Caesar existed or whether his writings are true. And I mean, I had to translate those things as a Catholic boy in my third year of Latin. The writings of Julius Caesar, that is a lot of fun. Okay, well, we didn't sit there and question, I don't know, is this for real? Why am I doing this? I'm just assuming, man, this is all for real. You know how many years after though he existed in those wrote 850 AD. And you don't hear anybody questioning whether Caesar existed. And we have these manuscripts. Listen, I'm telling you, those manuscripts, they aren't just like in one little place, in one little hole. Those manuscripts that they have are spread out everywhere across all kinds of regions. They divide the regions into four regions, all these manuscripts, and they all basically uh, match up. So anyways, like I said, nobody questions about whether Caesar lived or died. So here's the thing. So do you ask yourself, I do, when why would the Bible be questioned like it is? Well, for one thing, and these other things aren't. Nobody questions Caesar's writings. We could name other things, right? For one thing, I could say, first of all, who cares? Who cares whether Caesar in his writings and all that, you know, then the bottom line is. But the other thing is, what is the best-selling still book in the world? It is the Bible. It's the best-selling book. And people across the world, everywhere, are still giving their lives because they read this Bible, heard it preached to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is still having an impact. And I would say the fourth and other obvious reason why this Bible is being attacked and its validity, and they've got, they got this thing called a Jesus seminar where they'll go through the New Testament and the Gospels and decide, well, we think this part was inspired and written, but this wasn't, this was added, and they'll literally pick it apart like that. Like, right, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. But has the devil, from Genesis down until this present day, has it not been with the devil, hath God said? And he's been trying to undermine the Bible and what it says forever. But yet, like I said, it's still having that impact. So the other thing I think it helps us to know is with all these manuscripts that they found, so I had to study this stuff at school, and it's not that exciting, but the thing is when they compare all these manuscripts, they have some older, some younger, and, they'll, and the uh, critics 
And the skeptics will bring up all, well, there's these discrepancies between these manuscripts. So how do you know which one is the right one? Well, like we've heard, so there are no original manuscripts left. They're all non-existent. So we do have copies of copies. But within those copies of copies and those thousands of copies and copies, there is 98% agreement between them. So the Texas Receptus, where we get our King James Bible, it, it's really a much later manuscript. And you have these much earlier manuscripts, and so a lot of people will say, well, look, there's a lot of things in King James that isn't right. But even when you compare those manuscripts, there's still 98% agreement. I mean, that's phenomenal. And so you're asking, well, what about the 2%? Couldn't that be potent? No, it couldn't be. Because within the 2% where there's discrepancies, generally, most of them are like a word's changed in the word order. So a scribe wrote Christ Jesus instead of Jesus Christ. There may be discrepancies like that. And most of them are very minimal. And I don't know how many of you also know, but when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, I believe it was 1948, you know, they've been questioning how accurate the Old Testament was. And when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, that was, I mean, the oldest thing they had found at the time. They just almost exactly word for word for what we had. And that just, they keep silencing the critics. And down through the years, they'll say, well, the Bible talks about this king and this kingdom and this place and this city, and they're nowhere to be found. And that proves the Bible's not true. And time after time, up to this present day, they unearth these cities that are in the Bible. It's like, oh, well, there is that city. And they have never found anything to disprove the Bible. They have things they say, but nothing that's ever disproved it, that's ever stuck, because it just isn't true. So here's the thing, you're like, why does all of this matter? Why should I care? Well, let me say, so the other day, I'm sitting out front, a Cracker Barrel, and the gentleman came Sunday. I hadn't seen this, that man in seven years, an old customer of mine, and I really like him, nicest guy in the world. And um, so here, sitting out Cracker Barrel, he shows up again. And I'm like, wow, I'm, that's the coincidence of this. And I sat there and talked to him for an hour on a bench out in front of Cracker Barrel. Well, part of what's getting brought up is he's having questions about the Bible and the validity of the Bible. So it's not like that's going to get somebody converted that you can have answers. But if you can just disarm those questions, it helps. And then it gives you a foothold to where, because here's the thing. They're saying the Bible's untrustworthy, unreliable, stories are made up. And I'm saying... We need to be able to tell them, no, this Bible is 100% trustworthy. It's a reliable document. Yeah, it is. We don't just believe it. We don't have blind faith. So in saying that, I got a book. So I only have one of these, and whoever wants it can come up and get it. I don't care when you come up and get it. You can come up and get it now or after church. But this book is a very, it's actually written very well. It's very easy to read. The guy that wrote this book, I'm sure some of you have read it, Lee Strobel, he was an atheist. And he went on a search to find out, hey, is this Bible stuff true? And he's asking all these different experts in different fields. And he came away from that convinced it has to be true. Yeah. Not just because we want it to be true. It has to be true. It would be in a, in a court case it would be found to be true. And I would suggest it's called The Case for Christ. Like I said, it's, you could read this thing in a weekend. It's, it's well written. He, he used to write for the Chicago Tribune, I think. And uh, so he's a good writer, and it's very well documented. It's a very well put together book. And the reason I got a book like that is when I was going into prison, you run into all kinds of people. People, if you witness enough, they're going to raise these types of questions, and it helps to be able to give an intelligent answer. Because we're not stupid people as Christians, are we? 
Well, let me ask. Let me ask you a question. How many of you in here know how many of the gospel writers actually walked with Jesus? So we got four gospel accounts. You thinking? Anybody want to raise their hand and answer? Two of them. Only two out of the four. So you got Matthew, the tax collector, and John, the beloved disciple, are the ones that walked with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Mark didn't. Did you know that? Well, we'll see in a minute here, it might surprise you where Mark got all his information from. And Luke, we know, didn't. Luke was after, and he went back and did an investigation of it all and asked different people. He just flat out says that in the beginning of his, his gospel account. But if you would, you're at the beginning of Mark. Um, Mark actually gives a little brief, I believe, biographical. If you turn back to chapter 14, he gives a brief biographical account of himself in here, which is sort of humorous, I guess. But when Jesus is arrested, back in Mark chapter 14, look what it says in verse 50 of Mark 14. It says, uh, after they arrested him, it says, they all forsook him and fled, and there followed him a certain young man, having a linen cloth cast about his naked body, and the young man laid hold of let young men laid hold on him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. I mean, there's no explanation given who that is. It's got to be Mark. I'm sure it was. He's just throwing himself in there, a little hint that that's who it is, and that's who most people would say he is. So, but how do we know that Mark was the author of his gospel? And the other, the other thing I want to talk about is, you know, what was his source? So there's, like I said at the beginning, there's nothing in the gospel that identifies Mark as the author but he's always been named as the author when they gave early titles to his gospel and all through church tradition. And the church fathers all considered him the author. So it's unlikely, too, that they're going to get this, this gospel account, whoever the first people were to get it, that it's just going to come anonymously and unannounced. Like, well, what is this? Who wrote this? We have no idea. And they're going to accept it. So generally, they would have understood, just common sense would tell you, they would have understood that Mark wrote it. So... Mark has been associated, like I said, from the very beginning. And the other thing I would like to say, where do you think he got his information? So he wasn't walking with Jesus, and he gives the most detailed accounts of events that happened. Way more detailed than Matthew and Luke and, and even John does. So he didn't walk with Jesus. He wasn't named as a disciple. So there was a man that lived in A.D. 90, not very long after all this happened. And he recorded this that was written by a another historian. And so listen, it says, Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately, though not in order, all that he remembered of the things said or done by the Lord. For he had not himself heard the Lord or been his follower, but later, as I said, he followed Peter. And Peter delivered teachings as occasion required, rather than compiling a sort of orderly presentation of the traditions about the Lord. So Mark was not wrong in recording in this way the individual items as he remembered them, his one concern was to leave out nothing of what he had heard and to make no false statements in reporting them. So that's like hardly any period of time after the gospel was actually written. They knew that Mark went, had traveled with Peter, and we'll see that he traveled with Paul too. And so he's listening to Peter give these accounts. He would have been a friend of Peter's, and Peter would have given him the details of these things, and it said that he went and wrote them down carefully. So they're saying, 
So a lot of things people get messed up in, we have our, our biographies are right, boom, 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 in order. And so everything, when you do a synopsis of the Gospels, everything's not in the same chronological order they're written, because that's not the point. They're not trying to write a chronological biography. These Gospel accounts, all of the Bible, is theology. So it's not inaccurate in what they report, but they're not claiming to try to write a chronological biography in writing it. So here's the thing. Mark is a lively book. Uh, hopefully you'll at least skim through it after tonight. And if that's the case, and he's basically writing down carefully what he heard Peter preach, Peter had to be a lively preacher. And I think he was just by his character. I mean, the way that guy acted, I guarantee you he was a lively preacher. So Mark would have relied heavily on Peter's eyewitness account. So we're saying anything, so the way you understand this, let me backtrack here, our canon, our New Testament books, one of the issues that had for a book to become canonized, it had to either be written by an apostle or someone directly associated with an apostle. And that's why we talk about our foundation is the apostles' teaching. And so if you would turn to, put something in Mark, whatever, and turn back to Acts. So we're saying he's relying on Peter and his eyewitness account. And if you would look back in Acts 10, Acts chapter 10 and beginning in verse 36. And so here Peter is preaching to the house, Cornelius and his household. In verse 36 he says, the word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That word, I say, you know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And look what he says in verse 39. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem whom they slew and hanged on a tree. So right there he's, he's saying, hey, Peter was a witness. I was right there. I heard him preach. And that's what Mark's reporting to us. So he didn't have to make anything up, did he? He just faithfully wrote what he heard Peter preach or what Peter told him. So here's the thing we need to understand. So He's only as good, Mark is only as good, and this gospel is only as good as its source, which was Peter, right? And so look at one other verse, if you don't mind, please, in 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1, 16. So we're saying he's faithfully written what Peter as a witness gave him, and Peter is only as good, or Mark's gospel is only as good as the source, which is Peter. And so in 2 Peter 1, verse 16, look what Peter wrote here. He says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we may note unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he says what? He says, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And that's a tremendous thing he's saying there. Peter is saying, I didn't sit around and dream all this stuff up that I've written to you about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, No, not cunningly devised fables or tales as it would be said. He said, we were eyewitnesses. Everything we said is absolutely true. That's important to know, isn't it, about our Bible. This, these accounts are, we can trust them. We can trust what's written there. And so that is what Mark has done. And we need to know that when we read this gospel. This is a faithful eyewitness account of what we're reading about the life, teaching, and miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's important. 
And so I told you about the one church father, and here's what several others, these are shorter uh, quotations, but just to show you that this was the accepted amongst the church fathers that Mark wrote this gospel, and that it came through Peter. It says, but after their departure, Mark the disciple and interpreter of Peter himself also handed over to us in writing the things preached by Peter. And that's Irenaeus, and that's in 170 AD. So that's still very early. And Clement of Alexander, both of these guys are well-known church fathers, for those of you that don't know about the church fathers. And just 10 years later, after that, Clement wrote this. It says, when Peter had publicly preached the word at Rome and, and exhorted Mark as one who had followed him for a long time and remembered what he had spoken to make a record of what was said, and that he did this and distributed the gospel. So that's clearly the understanding. So you all understand that for a long time, so we're saying there was 30 years. For 30 years, there was nothing written down. It's not like as soon as Jesus died, they all headed off to a, a shack somewhere with a table and said, I got to get this written down as soon as I can. No, you know how all these accounts, they were verbally repeated. But we'll talk a little bit later about how that's not a problem. So the old thing about, hey, they didn't write it down right away. How can we know it's accurate? And if I tell Rico something and he tells Tracy and it moves all the way down the church, by the time it gets over to Keaton, we're going to have a whole totally different story. That's not the way it was back then. Because those people didn't read a lot, for one thing. And they stories and people public speaking, that is how information was conveyed. And if they heard something, they'd heard a story, and they hear it again, and it's not told right. It gets corrected right away. So that's the way it was. For 30 years, we did not have a New Testament. No gospel accounts. And so Mark's traveling with Peter, and at some point, there's, from what we're reading here, they told him, hey, we need you to write this stuff down. And God put it on his heart, because we all know that it's inspired of God, right? I mean, he's the source, right? He's the ultimate source, right? So what about this person? I want to just briefly look at, at the actual man, John Mark. So if we can do most of it in one small little area. If you would turn to Acts 12, look about the writer of the Gospel of Mark. And beginning in John 12, or Acts 12, I'm sorry. So this is the account of, of Peter is put in prison. So they're having a prayer meeting. And when Peter gets out of prison, he heads to somebody's house. And in verse 12, Acts 12, 12, it says this. And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. That's our man. Where many were gathered together praying. So one thing we know is he came from a wealthy family. His mother lived in Jerusalem, and she had to have a big house because the church is meeting there praying, and she's got money. She's got a gate on her house, and most people didn't have all that. So that's his mother right there. And then look down in verse 25 of the same chapter. And so here we see he goes into ministry with uh, Saul and Barnabas, Acts 12, 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So while you're wondering why does he have two names, well, John would have been his Jewish name and Mark was his Roman name. And that's why he's called John Mark. And so he goes into ministry with Barnabas and Saul. And if you look over in the next chapter, uh, chapter 13, verse 5, and it said, When they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John to their minister. So he is somehow ministering to these two men as they're, they're out on the mission field. And then in verse 13, though, of that chapter, 13, 13, 
It says, now when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. So at this point, John leaves them. And we don't know exactly why, but I would surmise that that mission field, and Paul was constantly getting beat up, wasn't he? And it was just a little more that he could handle at this time. And so he departs because it couldn't have been a good thing because we'll see later. You know, Paul says, hey, he departed from us. I don't want him to come back with us this time. You know, him and Barnabas have that argument. So we see that if you'll go over to um, Acts 15, just a couple chapters over. In verses 36 at the end of that chapter. Uh, Paul gets a little in the flesh here, I guess. But uh, over this whole thing, Mark had left them. And so a few chapters later, as we read, in some days, this is Acts 15, 36, some days after Paul said unto Barnabas, let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. But Paul thought it not good to take him with them who departed or deserted from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed unto Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, confirming the churches. But there we have him getting hooked up with Barnabas. And so what a lot of people don't know is Barnabas and John Mark were cousins. Did you know that? So we know that. You don't have to turn to it. and I'll read it to you. But in Colossians 4.10... It says this, Paul wrote this at the end of that epistle. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, salutes you, and Mark, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom you receive commandments. If he come to you, receive him. So right there we know that Mark was Barnabas's cousin. Well, anyways, but at the end we also know, so he's run out of favor with Paul, but at the end of Paul's ministry, Mark has been restored. So whatever happened, he's proven himself to Paul to where Paul wants him to come back. Because in 2 Timothy 4, which was the last epistle that Paul wrote right before he died, he said this, Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to, for me for the ministry. And then you're wondering, well, where's the Peter connection? Well, Peter, in his own epistle, 1 Peter 5.13, wrote this, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greeting, and so does my son Mark. And that's in 1 Peter 5.13. So that kind of just gives you a, a brief background of his life. So his mother, he would have been right there in that early church, right involved with everything going on there. And he would have had a connection with Peter right then when they were praying. Obviously, he knocks on the door. He would have known who he was, and uh, they were in that church in his mother's house. So here's the thing. What is, I want to talk about the function uh, in part of this introduction, the function of Mark's book. And what I mean by that, so if you wrote a book today, people that write books write them so that people will read them, right? <laughs> I mean, that's kind of like, duh. That's the only reason you're going to write a book so somebody reads it. But listen, back then in that day, they did not have printing presses. And books were very rare and very expensive, and only the rich had them. And thus... What percentage of the population do you think could read? I mean, I would say probably 90%. I mean, it's getting pretty bad in America, though. Lisa and I talked to a guy that we know at the restaurant there that uh, he's taught for one year, and I think it might be his last year. And he's just telling us stories about it. It is just unbelievable 
they're getting, they just get, they want to get these kids out of school and they're just promoting them when they can't, they can't do simple arithmetic or read simple words. It's pathetic. But let's say 10 years ago, I'll bet 90 to 95% of Americans, I don't know what the percentages could read, but back in that day, 10% of the population could read. So Mark's not writing his gospel for everybody to have a little New Testament in their lap like we have today. And I'll tell you, that's one thing. We really ought to appreciate the fact that, you know, we have Bibles that we can read and study anytime we want to. And at the best, in a city, if it was a big city with, you know, education going on, you'd have 15 to 20 percent of the people. So Mark, and this, like I said, it should help us to read this gospel if we understand it a little better. But Mark's gospel is not so much written to be studied and read. It's written to be heard. It's written to be read aloud in local church meetings like this. And so you could say that the reading of Mark's gospel is preaching because that's what it was intended to be read from chapter 1 through chapter 16 all at one time, and it's coming across as a message preached to the people, and that's how they're receiving it. So this man may have said Mark was designed for oral transmission to be spoken as a continuous whole, not for private study or silent reading. And so what he does is, Mark uses a lot of things, if, if you're a good speaker, and I'm not saying I am, but if you'll ever listen to a good speaker, one thing they'll do a lot of is they will repeat things, or they'll say the same thing in a different way. Because when you're listening, you're getting your information different than when you're reading it. Because as a listener, you can't go back and flip the page back or reread that paragraph to try to understand it again. So, and I know I probably go from one thing to another a little too quick, but a, a good speaker will kind of cover and recover things and say things several different ways, and it gives people time to process as they're listening. And so that's what we have going on with Mark. So to give you an example of that, if you go back to that gospel, he does things where he'll repeat things. If you look in chapter 2 and verse 25, but you'll notice uh, he writes there, and he said unto them, Have you never read what David did when he had need and was hungered he and they that were with him. I mean, he could have just said when they were hungry, but he's saying when they have need and when they're hungry. It gives you time to process what he's saying. And another technique he'll use that is very helpful and it helps people to remember things is called the sandwich technique. And what I mean by that, I can give you an example. Well, in Mark 5, and everyone will know this, what he'll do is, like, so he's wanting to teach on faith. So what he does, he starts off talking about Jairus and his daughter. That's the beginning of the sandwich, all right? Then he jumps right into what? The woman with the issue of blood and talks about her. And then he comes back to Jairus' daughter and finishes with that. It's a sandwich he's created there, and he's trying to teach a lesson on faith. It's just easier for a listener to remember those types of things. So he used a lot of those devices, and it helps you kind of like catch up with what somebody said. So, you know, if you read Matthew's gospel or even Luke's, it is much more detailed and orderly than Mark's is. Mark's is like, it's like getting on a, uh, uh, thank you. <laughs> Glad you're here. You, you back down in Texas, I'd be in deep trouble, wouldn't I? It's like a roller coaster. You get on that thing and it's just one story after another. Bam, 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 hitting you. And, <laughs> you know, Mark's story, it's not made to be studied. It's made to be listened to, and he just keeps that action moving. And I, I don't want to go through this. I had thought about it, and we could, but you can. And, and he uses the word immediately. Okay, so in the entire New Testament, immediately is used like 82 times. 
42 of 80 times, 42 of them are in the Gospel of Mark. And the reason is he uses that to just keep the action moving. And in the first chapter, he uses the word immediately. It's not always translated that way, but it's the same word. But he uses the word immediately nine times in chapter one. So he's talk about this event, and then he'll say, and then immediately or forthwith or whatever word the King James translators use. It just keeps that moving from one story to another. And so I would suggest, while it's fresh in your mind, so you'll know that it'll kind of stick with you a little better, just peruse through the Gospel of Mark. And here's the thing. There's only one long discourse that he gives of Jesus, unlike Matthew and Luke. Because he'll talk repeatedly about that Jesus was a teacher and one about teaching. He just doesn't give a lot of his teachings. But he just keeps it moving from one story to another. And if you just go through it quickly, you'll see that that's what he does. You don't have to read even every account. So there's very little commentary in there. And so what he's doing here is... It's, it's an analogy of what he's trying to do through this written gospel that is meant to be heard is it's, you think about a documentary. You watch an hour-long documentary on some kind of fa famous person, like whether it's John F. Kennedy or the O.J., they have one out on him now, or Cassius Clay. He's not Muhammad Ali. He's Cassius Clay. Or one of those 30 for 30 things. And how do they put those things together? What, what are they giving you? They don't necessarily go through, if they're going to do it for an hour and they're wanting to tell you about a big event, they don't give you every 24-hour period, every little thing that goes on, do they? You'd fall asleep. And Mark's not doing that. So they'll give you clips of famous events. So if there's like one thing that's constantly happening, they're not going to show you every practice that basketball team had in their documentary. They might just show you a brief segment of one practice letting you know that this all well, this kind of went on the whole time they're having practices or they're going to show you that there's one thing that was a big turning point that happened one time they're going to show you that and focus in on that so if you're watching something on jfk they might show you a brief thing of one of his speeches and you know he gave a bunch of different speeches right but when they get on that assassination that was a huge turning point and a big event and they're focusing in on that right and that's what mark's doing so he's given us things that were probably happened throughout Jesus' ministry, but he's going to focus in in a big way on these big events that happened, right? And that's kind of what you get. And you'll get on those uh, documentaries, you'll get little snippets of speeches or interviews that are given. And that's what we get from Jesus. We don't get long discourses from him in, in this gospel. An occasional commentary by a narrator will come on those documentaries. It's the same with Mark. He doesn't give much commentary, though, in between. And you'll have different crowd scenes, won't you? When you watch those things, you'll see big crowd scenes, small. You'll see the person individually being interviewed. And that's what we get here. So we have occasions where there's huge crowds gathered, where he's alone with his disciples. Everything you'd want to see in a good documentary that you're going to watch on TV, the problem is Mark doesn't have the advantage of film and sound, does he? So he has to rely on what? He has to rely on storytelling. And that's what he's doing here. So when he tells an account, his accounts, like I said earlier, that are the same in Matthew and Luke, his accounts are like twice as long. He gives a lot of details. And it goes back to proving that Peter had to be the one. How would he have all these details there? Peter had to tell him about him. I mean, that gathering demoniac, there was a lot of detail in that account that you're not going to find in the other accounts. So just to give you a brief outline of Mark, and this is very brief, it's like the first 10 chapters of Mark basically deal with Jesus's life as a miracle worker and it's predominantly that and as a traveling teacher. Like I said, he doesn't give a lot of his teachings. And the last 
chapters 11 through 16, he gives a big emphasis. Just like I said, JFK's assassinations emphasized. Well, he has a huge emphasis on the crucifixions and the events leading up to that and the Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection. So if you could, we'll go back to chapter 1, and I just want to look at that first verse to end tonight. So it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Mark's going to begin, it says the beginning, he's going to begin his gospel where the public ministry of Jesus began, and that was with John the Baptist baptizing him. That is where the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ begins or starts. And so he calls him, it's the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that is a favorite expression Mark likes to use, that he's the Son of God. And Probably the reason is, like I said, we don't know for sure who he was writing this to, but more than likely he's writing this to Christians that were in Rome. And so Son of God was a title that he uses that it, it displays. What it's telling us is Jesus' unequal and unparalleled relationship to the Father. No man on earth ever had a relation or a title like that, the Son of God. And that would have spoken to those Roman Christians when they would have heard that because Nero, who was emperor at the time, he promoted himself as being deity more than any other emperor because the titles he used of himself, he literally called himself, Nero did, he said, I am the son of God. He actually used that same title. said he was the son of God, God, Lord, Savior, Benefactor. Those were titles that he would have put on inscriptions and whatever. That's what he wanted to be called. And that's the way a lot of those emperors were. They were considered deity. And Mark is saying right at the beginning here, Hey, you guys, want, I'm going to tell you about a man that really was the Son of God, and this is the good news. That's what he's saying, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, who truly is the Son of God. And so what is, that's the principal message of this gospel, as we'll see it, is the sonship of Jesus, his power over nature, over demons, over sickness, over all of creation. He truly is the Son of God. Nero is not that. And that would have impressed, like I said, that would have impressed the inhabitants of the Roman Empire. So I don't want to go, we're not going to go much more into this tonight. That's really what we're going to talk about. But here's the thing. Mark wants people, the people of Rome, whoever he's writing to, people everywhere, to know about the true Son of God. That's, that's what he's writing here. And here's the thing. Mark had had his own personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. He'd given his life to Jesus, and he knew firsthand, like we've been talking about, of the great transformation that took place in his own life when he had that encounter. And that's what he's wanting to let others know. That's his inspiration to write this. <laughs> of course, the Holy Spirit, like I said, is obviously uh, inspiring him that. But he, you think about it, too. The things he hadn't seen, he's traveling with Paul. Like, Paul would not have talked about his experience on the Damascus Road, some of the revelations that he was shown. Can you imagine fellowshipping with him and seeing the life of the Lord Jesus Christ coming out of the Apostle Paul? And then he's traveling with Peter and hearing all these accounts of things that Jesus, and that just would have just confirmed his faith over and over again, wouldn't it? And he's just wanting to share that with us. And so that's what we're going to do. Go through this and glorify Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen. <laughs> I mean, that's what we want to have. And so, like I said, he wants to share that with us. And that's why he writes that gospel, so you and I can experience it. And so God inspired him to write it because he wants us to know it too. It's just as simple as that. And that's what we'll do. So this wasn't so much, but like I said, I think it, we need to have times where we need to be better 
understanding of these gospels we're reading and, and the background behind them, and it just helps you appreciate them a little bit more. Amen? Amen. So we'll, we'll pick up uh, in chapter 1 next time. Amen? Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, that for this word you've given and that you've inspired and for these men that faithfully wrote down their eyewitness accounts of your life and the miracles you did and the teachings that you gave us, Lord, so that we too can put our faith and trust in you and just know who you are. And, and this is how we see your face, Father, and know who you are and, and your characteristics. And we just thank you for this word that you've given, that you've preserved down through these centuries, Lord, and the faithful men that wrote it. And we just do that in appreciation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.